almost every week that you just you dread. <coughs> yeah, like your least favorite part of the week. Uh, mine is always when Lynn, who works in the front office here at the church, not my wife, Lynn, the other Lynn, or uh, Josiah or someone comes and asks me for a sermon title. I hate that. I'm so not creative. They always, I always have to go back and like just try and pick a word out of the text or something like that to focus on. But did you see Josiah's sermon title for next week? Satan interprets the Psalms. That might go down as the best sermon title ever because it's vague enough. I don't know what he's talking about. It sounds controversial, it sounds intriguing, and I think it would be a great contest if we could all just guess what he's talking about. And then, So next week, come with your 3x5 card, or come with a written, what is Josiah actually talking about next week? And we'll, I don't know, we probably won't do anything with it because we'll forget, but, you know, it, it sounds like a great idea, a contest, but what is Josiah thinking? Uh, that sermon, that's great. Um, we're continuing the sermon series on... So a short series, like Bob said last week, uh, only four parts, and there's like 150 psalms. Not like 150, there is 150 psalms. Um, so we're, we're carving up big chunks and, and talking about categories of psalms. But when you hear the word psalms, what, what first comes to mind? Psalms? Okay. <laughs> Redundant. All right. Very good. Okay. Songs. Yeah, that's what the word means. Okay. What else? Really green grass and sheep. Green grass and sheep. You've got a weird mind. No. <laughs> Psalm 23. I got it. Thank you. Okay. okay. What else? What comes to mind? David. David. Yeah. The author of many of the Psalms. Despair. Despair. Okay, there's definitely those in there too. Good. Praise. Praise, yeah, that's what Bob kind of unlocked for us last week. Okay, now when I say wisdom, what comes to mind? Proverbs. Okay, almost in unison, right? Proverbs. And that's true. I mean, when you think of wisdom and someone said, go show me some wisdom in the Bible, you probably go to Proverbs. But wisdom is a bigger category, and the Bible shows us wisdom in a lot of different ways. It shows us wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ, who is wisdom incarnate. It shows us wisdom in that story of, of Job. Matter of fact, there's a category of wisdom literature called wisdom literature in the Bible that includes Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the Psalms. So tonight we're going to look at Psalms Probably much just two of them. Psalms that are in that category of wisdom psalms. Has anyone seen the Nicolas Cage movie? It's Nicolas Cage and I think her name is Taylor Leone. Am I saying that right? The, the movie is called The Family Man. Has anyone seen it? Okay, it's like kind of a similar to It's a Wonderful Life, but different. You know, It's a Wonderful Life's a classic. Family Man's not. You know, Family Man, to be honest, kind of sucks. But it's helping me make my point, so you should go see it. Uh, and, and It's a Wonderful Life. I just almost said Jim Carrey. No, Jimmy Stewart uh, gets to see what the world would be like without him, right? What if he had never been born? In the movie A Family Man, it's different. Uh, Nicolas Cage is this 
really wealthy banker, Wall Street kind of guy who lives in a penthouse in New York, drives a luxury car, has a fantastic looking girlfriend, just has all the stuff that the world would say makes you successful. But one night he's kind of reminiscing and thinking about his life and wonders what it would have been like had he woken up or had he chosen to marry his sweetheart in college. Well, the next morning he wakes up and he's in that life. The life he would have had had he chosen to marry uh, Taya Leone, the, the actress who is now his wife. And it's utterly different. He's got kind of a low-paying job in his father-in-law's tire store, I think it is. Stable, doesn't make a lot of money, but he's got a family. He's got the love of his wife and his kids. And so the movie is about kind of these two alternative paths being laid out before him, and at some point in the movie, he has to choose. Do you want the success, the, the riches, the penthouse, the Maserati, or do you want this other life? Throughout the Psalms, wisdom is kind of put forward to us in similar terms. Two different paths. Choose. Uh, the path of righteousness or the path of wickedness and evil. Uh, Psalm 1 is, we're going to enter in two Psalms today. So if you have a Bible, you might want to put your finger in Psalm 1 and then your thumb in Psalm 73. That way you can flip back and forth. Psalm 1 sets this out pretty clearly. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who's righteous. Uh, blessed is the man who doesn't choose the way of wickedness. What does blessed mean, though? You know, if you did a Merriam-Webster search, it means happy. Happy is the righteous man. Happy is the one who scorns wickedness and evil. Now, when you hear that, happy is the righteous man, what do you think? What thoughts come to mind? Don't make me go all Bueller on you. Anyone? Happy is the righteous man. Righteousness equals happiness. Okay, righteousness equals happiness. It just sounds like you're going to feel better about yourself. The more righteous you are, the better you feel. Okay, yeah, the more righteous. This is very subjective. The more righteous, the better you'll feel about yourself. You're at peace. You're at peace. Okay. Okay. Will anybody be brave enough, honest enough to admit you have almost a cynical reaction to that? Bob, okay. How am the old guy? <laughs> He's like the old guy in the balcony. <laughs> so, uh, I gotta be honest. I'm a little cynical when I hear that. Happy is the righteous man. Now, I have to convince myself that that's the truth, because it's in God's Word. It doesn't strike me as immediately true, because, well, I look around, and there seems to be a lot of really happy, wicked people 
really suffering righteous people. Uh, I'm a little cynical of it. But so are the Psalms. Uh, when you look further in the Psalms, uh, you get this really, really realistic picture of life. And an accurate understanding of what this blessedness is. So now, flip to Psalm 73. I, I know I'm in danger of saying this too often, but I think this is my favorite passage in the Old Testament. It seems like every passage I'm dealing with on any given Sunday is my favorite passage, but this has been my favorite for years now, okay? not just this week. Uh, Psalm 73, partly because it's so realistic. Listen to what the psalmist, I'm going to read a chunk here. It's like 14 verses right up front. The psalmist says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Sounds a little bit like Psalm 1, right? But here's the realism. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs or no fear until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Isn't that just an amazing word picture, their tongues strutting through the earth, just boasting and bragging. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And here's almost gut-wrenching kind of honesty. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said thus, well, we'll stop there. Uh, you get the picture, right? He looks around and the wicked just seem to be prospering in everything they do. The Bernie Madoffs are getting ahead and getting away with it. No one's calling them into account. They're getting, they're living high on the hog. They're rich. They're oppressing people. And they're scoffing at God and saying, Really? What's God going to do about it? And people are questioning, is God even seeing what's going on? And here I am. I've worked to keep the law. I've worked to maintain righteousness. And I'm stricken. I'm poor. I'm destitute. I'm beat down. And they keep getting ahead. You ever been there? You ever looked at the world and said, what is the point of trying to be righteous? I remember this is going to sound really trivial, but I remember one of the first times that kind of smacked me and said, why do I worry about being good at all? It was in high school 20 years ago. Uh, do they still do senior class trips in high schools? Okay, sometimes. Do they still do senior skip day? Okay. Yes, but they don't tell you they do. Okay. See, in my high school, we had a senior class trip planned, and I can't even remember where it was, too. I think it was to New York City. Grew up in Binghamton, about three hours outside of the city. And it was scheduled for, you know, late in the year. 
and we had a senior class skip day scheduled for about, I don't know, February. But the administration had said, if attendance on this day falls below this threshold, your senior class trip is canceled. I went to school that day, and virtually no one else did. So the trip was canceled. And I was ticked. Like, I was here. I've never, I've still never been to New York City, dang it. Uh, you know, it's all because of those idiots skip. Now, I don't want to beat myself out as too righteous, because I missed like 30-some days my senior year. Okay? But I was there that day, because I wanted to go to New York City. And I remember thinking, why? Why? There's no justice in this. Why am I worried about it? I'm sure you guys have had similar kind of thoughts and struggles, haven't you? That maybe it's just seeing kind of the, the wild party life on the campus. And it looks so fun. And you think, why am I not doing that again? Or, or the kind of sexual freedom that so many of your classmates enjoy. And you think, why am I sticking to biblical standards again? Or those who cheat to get ahead. And you think, why am I struggling to maintain integrity when cheating is so much easier and seems to work for so many? That's what the psalmist is wrestling with here. And I think, if we're honest, that envy that us in the church have of those outside who live however they want, it's one of the main reasons people leave the church. You guys ever heard uh, of Aldous Huxley? Of course, yeah, right? Wrote Brave New World and others. A few atheists have been just as blatantly honest as he was. He said, I wanted sexual freedom. And to have sexual freedom, what I needed is a world that didn't have meaning or morals. So I worked from where I wanted to go, and then was able to reason from there to God doesn't exist. I think that happens to a lot of people who just abandon it. They, they're envious of what they see others enjoy, of the fun, of the high life. And they choose it. And then they think of reasons why. They rejected the church. They rejected Christ. They rejected the righteous life that the psalmist holds up. The psalmist is really realistic. It says, doesn't seem fair. Uh, the wicked are getting ahead. The righteous are pushed down. But he doesn't stop there, thankfully. Right? That would be depressing. He doesn't stop there. He, he pushes beyond what he observes with his kind of worldly eyes and says, take in the whole story. It, it doesn't just end with the fun. It doesn't just end in the here and the now. You've got to take a long view. I know you guys aren't nearly as fanatical about baseball as I am. Bob's close. We, yeah, we, yeah, we're right there. Best illustration ever about taking the long view, I think, comes from baseball and the steroid use. Now, the steroid use was just a quick, easy way to hit home runs and to get good at it. You juiced up, and you were a star, like, overnight. And so many people fell into that trap without taking a long view, without thinking, what's this going to do to my health in 10 years, in 20 years? What's this going to do to my reputation? 
What's this going to do to all the records I'm going to smash when there's an asterisk by every one of them in the Hall of Fame? What's it going to do to baseball in the long run when a whole decade or more is known as the steroid era? They chose the immediate and here and the now and forgot to take a long view of it. Well, the psalmist doesn't let us do that. He says, in the here and the now, this is what it looks like. Uh, but take a long view. Take an eternal view. That is a key to biblical wisdom. Not thinking that things end at the grave, but taking an eternal, long view. So, the psalmist lays out an eternal view in two ways. There's a negative way and a positive way. He said, remember, the wicked, they look like they're getting ahead. But, look at verse 18 in Psalm 73, if you got there. He says of them, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Or, back to Psalm 1. The wicked, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So it's kind of a negative spin on this, right? They look like they're getting ahead. But when you consider their future, they're not going to stand on Judgment Day. Uh, their eternal future holds nothing good. Take the long view. Understand that if you pursue this way, if you pursue this path, it ends in destruction. But there's the positive spin, too. Psalm 1-3, he, meaning the righteous man, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. You see what's at play there? He, he brings forth his fruit in season. Others be patient. Wait. The good is coming. Wait for the season of prosperity to come. Wait for the season of abundance to come. It will. Psalm 73 is uh, more beautiful yet. Psalm 73 says, nevertheless, he's remembering he's considered the wicked way and how it ends. And now he's pondering his life. And he's pursued righteousness and he's questioned whether he's done it with any purpose at all. But he concludes, and he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. This is my favorite verse in all of Scripture. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, the psalmist is saying, lay out everything that the world has to offer. Riches, wealth, the same thing, prosperity, fame, power. Just lay it all out there. I choose God. God's my portion. Uh, I can't be poor if I have God. I can't be poor if I take the long view. He's my portion. The earth has nothing I desire more than God. And heaven, you know, the streets of gold and the, the mansions, what's really great about heaven, I'll be with God. He's my portion. Heaven and earth have nothing I desire 
besides God. That's a man who is in love with his God. You can even say infatuated with his God. But he's realistic about it too, right? It's not just all warm and fuzzies. He struggled. And then he reminds himself of eternity. You'll receive me into glory. So the key to wisdom in these Psalms is to take a long view. To view eternity. To consider what is of true value. And it's the presence of God. Living and dwelling for eternity with goodness. The psalmist has walked from this almost place of despair. Why? Or why am I maintaining a pure heart and washing my hands in innocence? To this revelation that, yeah, it's not been pointless. Uh, I've chosen this way and it leads to life and it leads to blessedness. But there's a key turn in here that I don't want us to miss. How did he change his mind, Ellis? And how did he come back to his senses in a way? And it comes in verse 16. If you got it, go back to verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, this tension, the wicked getting ahead, the righteous suffering, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He goes into worship with these thoughts, with this struggle, and there he comes to his senses. There he's reminded of eternity. In the temple, amidst worship, in the company of, of God's people, of the saints. Don't miss out on the corporate nature of wisdom. There's something that is indispensable about the community of believers as you strive to adopt the righteous path and stay on that righteous path for a lifetime. We need each other to... Because this takes faith, right? I mean, we're not seeing the end. We're, we're contemplating the end. We're promised the end. But we need faith. And the community there is to bolster our faith. The community there is to lend us, as Bob says sometimes, to lend us their faith when our faith is weak. And it's in the midst of, of corporate worship that we're given little tastes of heavenly glory. Little tastes of what worship around the throne is going to be like. And that taste is enough to kind of whet our appetite and say, yeah, I want that. I want all of it. I'm not going to be satisfied with the trinkets and baubles of this world. I pursue it. Don't neglect. As you strive to live lives of wisdom, don't neglect the choice that's laid before you and the role that the church plays in encouraging you and sustaining you in that choice. To choose God and to choose righteousness. Uh, there's so much in the Psalms. And a lot of it comes down to laying out these two paths. Wickedness or righteousness. And the call comes... Choose the one that brings you to God. We're going to go ahead and I'm going to end there and open it up to questions if you have any. Bob, you can come up here. Well, let's see if we have any questions. All right. Because if not, I'm content to go sit down and call the worship band up. We don't. Do you guys have questions for Bob? <laughs> Correctives? Yeah, 
taking an eternal view doesn't mean you neglect what's in front of you. But then, yeah, there, there used to be this old saying that those who are so heavenly minded, that there's those that are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. I reject that entirely. I don't think you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I think the more heavenly minded are, the more you throw yourself into your work here, doing it in such a way that you earn eternal reward. Good answer. Oh, so, <laughs> I, I was putting up Alex's stuff and trying to be quiet. So if you read the question, you kind of miss it all. Um, I just said, how do you, you know, focus on like, okay, I have to test the speaker, I have to pay for due. Like, how do you focus on that, but then also still have a broad, like, eternal mm-hmm. view? Yeah, I think um, part, part of the answer for me would be that um, eternity starts right now. Right, because um, we, we like to think of it as out there and different than this reality. But you, you think about eternity in the New Testament and the themes. You remember things like right the the, the people who were given talents, and, you know the one talent, and five talent, all that kind of stuff. Those those guys were given what they were given, and what they were given was the ability to invest what they were given. And if they invested it well here and now. When the master returned, they had a great return to give to the master, right? So I think that's an image of our life. So when it's time for a test, um, it's as important as when it's time for a sermon, right? Uh, because you can, you can make it like super spiritual, like, oh yeah, well, you're getting ready for a sermon, so you really have to concentrate because that's a God thing. No, uh, eternity starts right now. So, yeah, I think that would be one of the ways of thinking. And all the pressures of this world are shaping us and preparing us for the next. Um, Creating in us dependence on God, awakening in us, you know, holy desires. Uh, And so I think that's part of it too. I got one. Yeah? Um, So whenever I was listening to you talk, I was sort of distinguishing between non-Christians and Christians. What about like the idea in Romans where Paul is talking should we sin so grace may abound? And so I assume that, that he's talking about Christians there who still um, relish in their sin because they know that it's forgiven. So should we approach it the same way you described, or is there a different way to distinguish that? Or, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, Paul's answer there is no, right? right. We shouldn't sin so that grace should abound. Uh, so I think that, you know, when you look at Psalm 73, he's like, he's saying, no, I, I didn't sin. And that's a good thing, and there's you know, rewards for that. I get that your question. Yeah, well, I was just curious if there's like a different way of thinking of it. Because whenever you first started talking, I thought, because it says the ways of the wicked, and I was thinking, um, I just assumed that I was like all non-Christians. Should, so I'm basically asking if it applies for like Christians who are struggling with the idea that, yeah, my sins are forgiven, so why can't I still yeah, that, I mean, that is a problem, and that's exactly what Paul was addressing, right? Because our heart is wicked. It just is by nature. So since our heart's desperately wicked, we're constantly inclined towards the things that are not of God. Um, and we try to seek satisfaction in those things, even though we know they're not of God. And so I think it does relate to the believer there when Paul's talking about people who are struggling. Um, he says, don't sin with grace right now. I, you know, the reason that he said that a lot of times we... We describe two different kinds of positions there. 
One would be uh, a legalistic position, which basically means you better get it right, so when you get it right, you can go to heaven kind of thing, right? It's uh, a legalism, it's a Phariseeism. And the other one is, what the heck difference does it make? God's already forgiven me for sins, past, present, and future, so I'll just live however I want to, because I'm a child of God, and I'm going to inherit eternity anyway. And Paul's talking about that uh, form of... Uh, it's also called antinomianism, which means against law, anti-nomos, against law. So Paul's saying, don't be against law, don't be against righteousness, live righteously because you were called to righteousness. Um, it doesn't attain salvation for you, but it's the way you were designed to live. I think sometimes maybe we, we so overreact against legalism that we reject the, any kind of notion of rewards in heaven based on our works here. But I think... You can correct me if I'm wrong. Jesus holds it up as do righteous, invest your talents, and there'll be greater reward in, in heaven. Uh, and so it's not entry into heaven, but there is an element of the more we do, the more we pursue righteousness, uh, the more we invest in the kingdom, the greater will our reward be. Which is the opposite. You know, you're not saying how do I get in, but how can I earn as much reward? You know, uh, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I kind of had a little bit of Right. This was explained to me by another pastor that I had, was that, uh, yes, all sins are forgiven through Christ, but no one is forced to have that forgiveness. Basically, I mean, one of the analogies that the scriptures say a lot is that God is holding out his hand to us, that he's reaching out to us. It's kind of the same way that um, we can, if someone's reaching out their hand, you can choose to take it or choose not to take it. Christ performs salvation for all sins. Whether or not we accept it is up to us. And we have to actually reach out and take it. And that's why trying to become more righteous, live more righteously, and perfecting ourselves. Yeah, and I, I was going to follow up on this question. It led me somewhere else. Maybe I'm going uh, far afield from your question. But um, sometimes, like when, when Dan was working on Psalm 73 there, the focus was, look, the wicked have it all, the righteous don't have anything, right? That was the contrast. I'm, I'm spending all my time trying to be righteous, what for? And the wicked have got it all. But remember the reference that he gave you in Psalm 1. It's not just like there's righteousness because eternal life is out there. There's actually righteousness. That, uh, there's not just reward because eternal life's out there. There's actually reward here and now for being righteous. Um, that righteous man in Psalm 1... They were talking about a guy whose life was lived righteously, and you could see the fruit of the righteousness then, too. It wasn't just about eternity. It was also right here and right now. Um, for instance, just, just an illustration. Uh, whenever when My dad died three years ago in March, and uh, I went down to Louisville, Kentucky to preach a sermon right um, at his funeral. That wasn't an easy thing to do. Um, you, never, you're, you, know, you don't really want to sign up for that, but I knew I had to do it. So I went down to brief dad's sermon, and I started out by quoting Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly, but stands in the way of sinners, and sits in the seat of the mockers or the scornful, for his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of living water that bring forth fruit in his season. And I looked out at 700 plus people that had gathered uh, at my dad's funeral from all over the country. Dad never had any money. We lived a relatively poor existence. 
He invested in people at a Bible college. He was a pastor in the later years of his life. And there were people from all over the nation that converged in that one hour setting to give thanks for that man and what he did for them. So I looked out there and I saw the fruit of righteousness. Not just, not just in eternity because I'm not there yet. I saw it right in front of me. And you know what they told us afterwards? They had a podcast of the funeral. And the pastor at that church in Louisville, Kentucky said, all 50 states were accounted for in the podcast. Every state in the union had tuned in, former students, to watch the funeral service. That was the fruit of righteousness right there in front of me. Um, Dad has his reward in heaven, but he had it in front of me too. I saw it. And it's being played out in your dad's progeny too. Yeah. You know, and that's cool. There's a this study uh, goes back hundreds of years that traced the descendants of Jonathan Edwards, pastor, and if descendants of another man in the town who was the town scoundrel, I think his name was Dukes or something like that, and in the Edwards line there was lawyers, a vice president, you know, all upstanding citizens who prospered, and in Dukes' line it was vagrants, prostitutes, murderers, you know, people who had just lived on the kind of the, the cusp of existence and and so, it, again, it's somewhat taken a long view. Because I'm sure your dad at times was, why? You know, oh, why I, I am I giving know, my yeah. money away? Why That's right. I'm sure Psalm 73 hit him hard sometimes. Why am I invested like this? Everybody else is wealthy and fat, luxurious, and I'm not. You know, especially when he didn't have enough money to buy stuff for us that he wanted to. You know, that, that's hard for a dad. No, I, I remember that. It was an awesome funeral. <laughs> yeah, I think you were there. That's right. Well, why don't we, on that, bring the band back up to... Close that off.